This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm, wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety. May all beings be happy, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be happy. Let none deceive another, or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outward and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. I am not holding to false views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. If a self meditation. Start by getting ourselves in a comfortable position. And find some pilot rough headphones.
Just start by seeing if the body is in a comfortable position. Sense of uprightness, but relaxed. Poise and balance. Start by coming into the present. posture and the breath. Just start by relaxing various parts of the body. Just taking the time, relaxing the head, neck, the shoulders, the arms, the hands, the chest, the heart, the lungs, the in-wind and the out-wind, so lungs fill up and empty. The upper torso, the middle torso, lower torso, Abdomen, belly region, lower back, middle back, the upper back, all of the torso. Just become aware of the motion as the breath moves, the abdomen with the chest. Just tranquilizing this part of the body. Relax the waist, weight of the body onto the seat, sitting posture, thighs, the hips, the knees, the lower legs, the feet. The whole body is tranquil and at ease, letting any tension go, any stress, any anxiety any agitation, any restlessness, just letting it all go. Relax the eyes, tranquility at the eyes. This Kaya Pasadi, tranquility towards the body and the eyes. 
and just stop in this stillness and peace, free from agitation, free from busyness, free from restlessness and anxiety. Just cooling down. meditation theme, now is the time to bring it in. I'll just give a guided meditation on the breath. There's background noise for anybody else who wishes. Let's start by just setting up our aspiration. Now is the time to practice. Now is the time to put forth effort and pacify our hearts. The mind be with its object in a very calm and balanced way. Death may come at any time. This is important. End of an in-breath, death may come. End of an out-breath, death may come. Faith in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, this conviction, this spirit of an apprentice, where we're apprenticing ourselves to the task at hand. So we're not in a hurry for quick results, we're just being an apprentice to the causes, drip by drip, every moment of peace, every moment of concentration will grow our inner resources. We just don't have to be in a hurry. We put the causes in. We're not in a hurry. And based upon our sila, on our virtue, bring up the virtue in the mind. This is like our foundation. And we see our virtue is pure. We have this pure intention. Cover over with mud and grass any difficulties we may have had. Give them up and train again. We have the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, we have the Sila, we have the aspiration to practice. Practice is important. We have these three things. Tranquility of the body, tranquility of the eyes, and giving up the asavas. However, the mind might flow out into worldliness. We just choose to give that up. Whether it's hindrance or thinking or however you want to label it, we just give up that asava, that outflow. It's not of use. We let all the steam concentrate in one place. We'll be aware of an in-breath, aware of an out-breath. If you'd like a mantra, we can use the word Buddha, Bud, in-breath, Do, the out-breath. In-breath we know, out-breath we know.
this total pacification of everything. Freely giving up the asavas, the outflows, freely giving up any difficulties, just delighting in a single in-breath, delighting in a single out-breath. difficulty or hindrance there is, we just give it up, let the heart be with seclusion, the in-breath and with the out-breath, in-breath, the out-breath, this pacification, this cooling off, really relinquishing everything else.
This is in the Dhammapada, it talks about the different paths. There's the path within the suttas. There's a path to the Buddha, which is the difficult path. There's a path to Pacheka Buddha. There's a path to Arahant. These are the three paths. And all the Buddhas, Pacheka Buddhas and great disciples of the Buddhas, all did so through determination. Great Venerable Sariputta and the great Venerable Magalana practiced for an asankaya an immeasurable period in a hundred thousand kalpas, a hundred thousand universe cycles, uh, practiced following the bodhisattva to be those great disciples. It wasn't easy for them. So whether whatever path that we choose, it's only done through truthfulness and determination. One thing the Buddha had supreme during his previous lives was truthfulness. He was always a true person. Because when we're a true person then we can build up our determination. This is like the firm ground for the heart. So Venerable Sariputta was one who could teach people right view. So he was said to be the one who could lead people to be Sotapanas. Venerable Magalana would teach teach people to become Arahants. He would teach them in seeing into feeling. Because when we see into feeling, then we go beyond feeling. And once we've gone beyond feeling, then we're not going to react to pain anymore. We're not going to react to suffering anymore. The last moment of an Arahant is Upeka, equanimity to all sankhara, a tendency to always react to things, always go out and build things, always get involved with things. And what is upeka? It's like covering everything with white sheets. 
we covered everything in our mind, everything in the world with a white sheet, all that remains is whiteness. We don't have to get involved with anything. Even if there's a war going to go on tomorrow or the world is going to end or whatever it is, it's just a white sheet. doesn't matter. don't need to get involved with it. And so whether we develop a paper through the piece of our meditation or whether we develop it through wisdom or a combination of the two, the result is the same. The result is the putting down of volitions of body, the putting down of volitions of speech, the putting down of volitions of mind. In the Four Nutriment, Lord Buddha taught us how to think of Chitta-sankhara, the volition, the tendency towards action of the mind. And his simile was, it's like a man wanting for life, not wanting for death was seized by the arm by two strong men and those two strong men started dragging him towards a pit filled like the height of a man, like two meters deep filled with hot embers, with hot coals, so hot that there was no smoke rising from it so just this burning pit of, of hot coals and what do you think, would that man try and get away? of course he would, because he was wanting for life, not wanting for death we try and squirm and writhe and try his best to get out of the lock of those men. And that's how the Buddha taught us to see nutriment of citta-sankhara, to see the nutriment of this getting involved with volitions of the mind. This is how dangerous they are. Because this tendency, if we can see this tendency in the mind to get involved with things, if we had to this level, then we would already be enlightened. So this is why a lot of people miss the Buddha's teachings because we always think that there's something in the world that needs to be done. But unless we have aspiration for one of these three paths to be a Buddha, a Pacheka Buddha, great or an Arahant, then we're lost in samsara. We haven't yet tasted the flow of the Dhamma because the flow of the Dhamma leads to this end of volition. So whether we're practicing the difficult path, the path of a Buddha, or the silent, difficult path, the path of a Pacheka Buddha, or, or we're practicing to be an Arahant. Even the great lay disciples of the, the Buddha, you know, you can practice as a lay disciple and still aspire to be enlightened. Even through the heavenly realms you can become enlightened. The path of generosity, for example. There's many paths to enlightenment. But the point is, without this aspiration for yoking yourself to an end to suffering, then all that's happening is we're just attaching to happiness and we're reverse to suffering and we're stuck in the round of rebirth. And so whatever good that we accumulate, in the end, that good will crumble away. And the Buddha said when he was a Bodhisattva, my life, uh, you know, even a king, you know, with all of these dishes of food and all these fine clothing and all these special things, you can only wear one set of clothes at a time. You can only eat one dish of food at a time. You can only... anything that you can think of in the sense-pleasure world, you can only consume one of them at a time. And once they're consumed, they're gone. And then all of that goodness that the Buddha was referring to in, in this life, eventually all the causes for that goodness evaporated. And then once again he was had a difficult, more difficult state of existence. So all the goodness that we ever do 
through our chitta sankara in the mind. This is why Ajahn Chah said, with good and bad, we have to throw them both out. Meaning first we make our mind like a king or a queen, in that we want to be good, we want to be virtuous, we want to aspire for noble things. But then we have to see that the goodness of the world only leads to rebirth, doesn't lead to an end to suffering. And so we have to make that goodness like our nest, our foundation, our raft. And, and but the Buddha said that we should empty a raft of attachment. Empty our raft of attachment, meaning travel quickly, travel lightly, you know, get to the far shore. This is, this is what we need to do. The many run, run and up and down this side of the shore. The few cross to the other side of the shore. And how do we empty our raft of attachment? It means that we see into the first three fetters. We become a sotapanna. And we base our life on the Buddha's teachings, not on the world. Like when we do actions, we do it for the highest generosity. We do it for the highest peace. We do it for the highest truth. And we don't want anything from the world. You know, even if wealth comes to beings, even if gifts come to beings, that we don't want for these things. So, so, what what's the good of good looks? What's the good of money? What's the good of wealth? If we're still going to be born into suffering, if we're still going to grow old, go die, as Ajahn Chah said, you know, really we should cry when people are born. That would be a that would be a more accurate thing to do. Because why why cry when people die, and happy when they're born? You know, because if we know the moment that a being is born, they're going to die. Wouldn't it be more appropriate to cry when they're born? But we don't think like that because we don't we don't actually see the Dhamma, and and because we don't see the Dhamma, this is why we get stuck in birth. And so even though it's two and a half thousand years from the Buddha to actually separate ourselves from the world, we need to see the danger of sense pleasures. We need to see the danger of sight, sound, smells, taste, touch, and thoughts about these things. This is the first level, because until we see the danger of sense pleasures, we're not going to be able to taste peace, we're not going to be able to taste the flow of Dhamma. And it doesn't mean that we can't still you know, make use of things in the world, and it doesn't mean that people can't be millionaires and wealthy, but as Ajahn Chah said, if you have a little, give a little. If you have a middling amount, give a middling amount. If you have a lot, give a lot. Meaning. What's the point of having worldliness if you don't know how to use it in line with Dhamma? So when we die, we can't take anything with us. So our whole uh, focus of our life can be focused on the spiritual. Like how can we make use of the days and nights of our life to give up, to give up to the Dhamma, to live it the way that Lord Buddha told us to live it? And how did Lord Buddha tell us to live it? Well, depending on our station of existence. So, so I'm a bhikkhu, so for the bhikkhus we have the Venerable Sariputta and the Venerable Mogalana. And then there's lay people and lay men and lay women here. So then the Buddha has the great lay men and the great lay women who were there. Uh, who That's that being's station of existence. So then you look, these are the beings who the Buddha said to emulate. There's the top two ones. And if that's too hard for somebody, then there's the other beings as well, under that. And so, because obviously if you're a lay person and then you're aspiring to be a monk, 
that's going to cause you lots of suffering. And if you're a monk and you're aspiring to be a lay person, that's going to cause you lots of suffering. So you need to know what your station of existence is, firstly, and then how to empty your raft of attachment. Well, we, we have these great disciples to emulate. And so that takes that pressure off. And for lay people, like the Buddha said, for one who practices the eight precepts on the moon observance days, that's enough to go to heaven. So that's not a small thing. In fact, in one of the Buddha's past lives, he, his employer required that beings, that his employees kept the moon observance days, so the lunar observance days, where you take the eight precepts. And for example, you take a low bed, like sleeping on, uh, sleeping on the, the floor on a simple mat or something on the moon observance days, and then um, and on those days you contemplate your precepts as well. So you contemplate the purpose of renunciation. So even though you may not be able to be a monk or a nun, on those days you're giving up more. So you're not going to be involved with sensuality, you're not going to be involved with scents and garlands and special clothes and colour and all these things, all these worldly things. And so by association the mind will incline towards renunciation even though one's living in the world. So you have this opportunity where you know, four days a month, where we get to taste what it is to be like a renunciant. And when the Buddha, on this one day, he, he got sick in the evening. So he worked in the fields on that day. And then when he came back and his employer told him, oh, you shouldn't have been working today because everybody takes the moon observance, moon observances on this day. And so the Bodhisattva requested to take them from him and he took them. And then these sicknesses availed him. He was in extreme pain, but he refused to take any, any medical requisites, uh, even though he was in great pain, and he actually died. And shortly after. But because of that, not even half a day of practicing those moon observances, he was reborn in heaven. And that was one of the, the stories the Buddha recounted on the power of the taking these precepts, that they're not small things. And, but even if somebody, even if there's too much, even those five precepts, you know, the five precepts are enough. If somebody being really took those five precepts into their heart, that's enough to have a heavenly mind. But it's just to see that there are different levels to practice, there are different ways of practicing. And so, so we have to look at our own practice and see, you know, how, how we can make best use of our times. Because they didn't, by this system, then you do have four days a month where you're focusing on your precepts and, and keeping some extra determinations. And um, this ability to uh, reflect the way the Buddha would teach the lay people is to think, well, you know, the Arahants, they only eat one meal at one sitting. So on this day, I'll only eat one meal on one sitting. The Arahants don't take a low bed, so I'll take a low bed. So you're doing this thing where you're taking the precepts, even though you may not understand them, those eight precepts, uh, being celibate and giving up garlands and scents and taking a low bed and one meal at one sitting. But you're training your mind to see, well, this is why the Arahants do this and they praise this. And so it's this way of emulating and, and teaching the mind 
And then what will naturally occur is by that act of renunciation, one will taste peace because one won't be getting involved with those other things. For example, a, a lay devotee who wears white, if they go to heaven, they will wear white because their mind has renounced color. But if somebody hasn't renounced color and they go to heaven, then they'll be wearing color in heaven. So these things are to do with the mind. They're to do with the level of renunciation that a being has, has developed here on earth. They have a direct connection. And it was interesting when I first became a Buddhist, because within, within a year I was wearing white all the time, even though I was outside the monastery. I, I didn't even know. I'd never even taken the precepts. Didn't even really know what the five precepts were, but just by being Buddhist and, and reading and being associating with Buddhists, I knew that white was a good thing. It seemed like it had a cooling effect. And so whenever I wasn't at work, I was wearing white, <laughs> which led to some interesting stories. And lots of people think you're a cricketer. <laughs> but um, it was just amazing for me to see how easy it is for the mind to um, to enjoy peace. Like you, we would think that that level of renunciation is difficult for a lay person. But what happens is because you start to taste the result of that peace, then, then your mind knows, well, on these days, when I do this, I'm not getting involved with other things. So there's other things you start to see where there is a suffering with them that I usually can't see. But on those days when I focus on the precepts, on those days when I renounce, the result is that I have a lot more peace in my heart. You know? And then, so I just, that was just a comment on the eight precepts. And then when we look at the practice, really, you know, the practice is from when we wake up in the morning to when we go to sleep at night. And, and it's a lot to do with our attitude and our application in finding a correct meditation means. And I think uh, Ajahn Tempudon said it's like trying to stand an egg on its end. It's very difficult. Every time you put the egg up, it falls over again. So you have this idea of trying to develop mindfulness isn't easy. So this is why we have like formal practice, you know, whether sitting, walking, standing or lying down. We start with periods of the day where we know at this time I'll be meditating in this way. And this is the meditation object. This is how I'm applying the mind. And then we try and do it in a way where we're not tense. And Buddha isn't tense, as the great teacher said. So if we're tense, then we're doing something wrong. And then so basically, these five hindrances that we talk about, you know, uh, sense desire, so desire for the sight, sound, smells, taste, touch, and thoughts about those things, ill will, restlessness and worry, dull, uh, dullness and drowsiness, and doubt or uncertainty. These are the five hindrances. When these things are there, we, we can't meditate. So what we do is we apply ourselves to our meditation, apply ourselves to mindfulness, and, and, and we have a teacher and teachings that we're following. And when we get stuck, if we find we can't solve our own problems, that's when we seek a teacher, that's when we seek help, that's when we seek guidance, because 
if, if all we're getting is hindrance, then we're not going to get any further. And, and then it's about... But that, the power of mind that develops those precepts is also good enough. So if we're ever lost in our practice, we just come back to our precepts. This idea of hiriotipa, which is like a sense of shame. So, so when we do something wrong, shame arises. And we know, oh, that wasn't right, that wasn't right, I shouldn't have spoken in that way, or I shouldn't have had that thought. And, and then a simple way of training ourselves is we embarrass ourselves by talking about our defilements with our close friends, so, so that we, we're bringing out that side of our body, speech, and mind, and we're separating that, and just seeing this is just defilement, and we don't want this. And so we need to have wise fellows in our holy life in our spiritual companions who we can talk about our practice and talk about our actions with. And this is a way of embarrassing our defilements. So don't, we don't have to attach to these things as ourself. These are the things that are hindering luminosity. These are the things that are hindering the perfection of sila. Because until we have morality as a foundation, then our practice is always going to grow and deteriorate, grow and deteriorate, grow and deteriorate. And so it's a, it's a difficult, it's a slow and difficult path. So we want to base our practice on this virtue. And what is virtue? Virtue is, well, say those five precepts, so abstention from killing, abstention from stealing, abstention, uh, killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, false speech and drugs and alcohol that lead to heedlessness. Basically strong drink, but it includes uh, anything which alters our mental state, which is not uh, you know, properly prescribed and, and really necessary. I would even question long-term use of opioids and these kind of things. Like We have to see what is the long-term result on our mind, because we have a society where we don't want any pain we don't want any suffering. But where is that pain actually coming from? It's coming from our own mind, it's coming from our own reactions. So we have to see over a period of time, you know, what is the best balance for us so we can have our mindfulness. It doesn't obviously mean normal prescription drugs that have a purpose. But we still need wisdom and not just to take things blindly. And and then so those five areas, the idea is that we would rather die and break them. You know, that's like, that's the level when they've entered the heart. If somebody says, look, I'm going to kill a billion people unless you kill this living being. And then you say, well, I can't. You know, it's just not in my nature. It's not possible for me to do that. And, and so that means that that has entered our heart. That, that, that it's become unshakable and invincible in our heart. That it doesn't matter what the external result is. What anybody says or does, that's up to them. You know, so, so sila means that in our own heart, it's become invincible, that it's just impossible for us to do that. It's our nature just, it doesn't matter what anybody else does, it doesn't matter what the result is, there's no equating, breaking that action. And, uh, and by the time a being is a sotapanna, they've seen into these things. So even a sotapanna can fall away from their practice to a certain level, but they'll never be able to knowingly kill a human being. 
They'll never knowingly be able to break sexual misconduct or this station of existence. They'll never be able to knowingly steal anything of value. And value changes also depending on circumstance. Because if there's a famine, for example, values of things go up dramatically. So even stealing a morsel of food would be something probably a Sotapanna couldn't do during a famine. So, so basically saying that there's a coarse level to defilement to Asila and then there's a refined level. So, so of the various stations of an existence, even a Sotapanna, their, their, their mind, there's a coarse level that they could never break, ever, under any circumstance. But still they may lose their mindfulness and, and kill an ant or, or have a bad period of practice. And, and, and this is why the Buddha talks about a noble disciple. He's only ever encouraging whatever station of existence his disciples are to be noble in their actions. So, because a Sotapanna who doesn't practice isn't very noble. So he's just causing himself suffering and other suffering. He's found a treasure and then he's stuck it in the mud. So it's not much, much help <laughs> to other beings. And it's written in the suttas that even as, you know, these beings, that that's why it's path and fruit. That once somebody has the fruit, so you're a sotapanna, then you have to take up the next path. You actually have to practice to become a sotapanna, and then you become an anagami, and then you have to practice to become an arahant. So these things it, need a cause and an effect. They don't just magically happen. And, and the Buddha didn't praise just waiting out the seven lives as a sotapanna either. Now that was a teaching that he avoided wanting people to know. <laughs> so. Uh, the point is, however we get our sila or our generosity, uh, you know, the, the simplest way to look at these things is that they lead to a heart that is thankful and grateful. They lead to a heart that is true. So as Umpotui, Ajantui said, just be true in everything that we do. Be true to truth. You know, and so if we're a true person in everything we do, we don't have to worry. It doesn't matter if we die tomorrow. It doesn't matter what other people do. It doesn't matter what the politicians or people in the world do. And in the suttas we see, the Buddha said, that even two people who practice the Dhamma, it's enough for the Dhamma to come back in the world. So this idea that the Dhamma is, you know, we have to worry about what other people do, or we need everything in the world to be perfect before we'll practice. Well, the conditions are just fine just now. You know, we're, we're fortunate, we're in an age where a Buddha has just been, and this is the smallest of the Buddhas. This is the, probably the darkest of, of the last, you know, of all the Buddhas. This is the tiniest one. This is the one with the, the least uh, light of Dhamma in the world. Yet, yeah, a Buddha arose. And there's been arahants down to the present. There's been enlightened beings down to the present. So I've never heard in the Buddha's teaching, uh, you know, a Buddha is a Buddha. So we don't need to question if if these things are open to us or not. All we have to see is how do we want to grow as a human being? You know, we have this amazing spiritual inheritance right in front of us, and we, and. Uh, all the 84,000 doors of the deathless, you know, or doors of the Dharma, if we want to become enlightened, all we need is one teaching of the Buddha to focus on. 
because that's enough for us to get unremitting mindfulness. Like even if we just chose death, if we were with death and the breath, you know, in three months we could become an arahant if we wanted. That's, that's the level of just taking one thing as our object. But usually what we need to do, like Lumpur Chat taught, is we just start with the basic aspiration, like whether one life or 10,000 lives, may I see the Dhamma. You know? So we start with something that's reasonable. And then in that aspiration, then we also determine that we'll do it the way the Buddha said, that we won't follow our own desires. Like whatever Lord Buddha said is true and, and not otherwise. And because sometimes we doubt might creep in through translation or through the books or, or through the teachers. And so we just say, we have our examples, like this teacher and this teacher. Like uh, when I was junior monk, I came across Lumpur Te. And Lumpur Te, and, and more recently in the last few years, Lumpur Tui, Ajahn Tampu Don, Lumpur Klien. And, and so all these great Krupa Ajahns who came over and, and taught here in Western Australia, for example. So the idea is, is, is you have beings who, who you believe have attained, who you believe have like this heritage of the Lord Buddha, and then you aspire. Well, you know, if they've seen the Dhamma, then the Dhamma is real. So it's not like some uh, ancient relic that, that can't be experienced personally. It's, you know, Sanditiko, it's something that can be personally known. And so until we have that faith, until we have that conviction, until we have that belief, until we see that it's true, then we're not actually going to become apprentices. It's like going to an apprentice and he tells you how to make a table. And then you go, well, you tell me that if I do these things I'll make a table. Maybe it's true. And then you never do anything that he told you. And then you just spend the rest of your life wondering if you could make a table or not. And so this is like, if you're we're an apprentice, we need to actually do what we've been told to do. And so, so uh, usually by the time we see into generosity, like, generosity is a wonderful thing. Like, the Buddha, he, like even as a monk, even to be able to give up, in one of the Buddha's past lives when he was Kasapa, Monk Kasapa. Uh, Saka came down and tested him, and, and, and the Bodhisattva gave up his meal of leaves three days in a row. And instead of being upset after every time that he was, gave up his meal to this other monk who came along, he just enjoyed the bliss of generosity. And such was the purity of his mind that he, he, he not only did he not mind skipping his one meal, but he was so happy to give. And that was the level of his spiritual parami. And, and so this is, this is like us, because when we have a mind that is freely giving, that's close to renunciation, that's close to a true person, that's close to gratitude, that's close to thankfulness. So all the marks of a true person are in giving. And when we can give of our material things, like our food and our clothing and things in moderation to our station of existence, because we don't want to make ourselves so difficult that we can't live ourselves, but to a point where we're giving in proportion to our station of existence, then that giving is very close to the giving that we have to do spiritually. 
And what do we have to give give up? We have to give up greed, hatred and delusion. And we have to give up our defilements. The, the 44 austerities, like 44 selekas in the Majjhima number 8, I think it is, is the 44 selekas. And, and literally it means austerities. So like we give up the wrong Eightfold Path, for example. And we develop the right Eightfold Path. So it's not just an Eightfold Path, there's a wrong one as well. We've got to make sure we're on the, the correct path. And so for every defilement, every one of those 44 ones, there's an uneven path and there's an even path. There's a low path and there's a high path. There's a path that's on fire and there's a path that's extinguished. And so we need to find the one that leads away from suffering. And, and, and so this whole talk is just about finding our inner aspiration, like what it is to yoke us, whether we want to be a better person, whether we want to be enlightened, whatever greater path that we want, we have to live by values and aspirations is actually taking us in that direction. Because a bigger bank account, uh, more material things, more external happiness, if this is all that people live for, then this is just going up and down in the round of existence. It's not leading to any uh, to any higher purpose. Uh, so, you know, from humble beginnings, it's about just aligning one thing at a time. So, the, the final one is the little verse in the Dhammapada, which talks about evil gathers drip by drip, or good travel gathers drip by drip. And so what I usually tell people is if just before we go to bed at night or sometime during the day, just reflect on the actions in the last 24 hours and then notice the moments of peace, notice the moments of mindfulness, notice the moments of virtue or sila, notice the moments where we've actually grown in generosity, where we've gone against our defilements. And then that gathering will fill the jug drip by drip of goodness until eventually it overflows. And and then by focusing on the good, then we don't have to worry about the evil because it means that that jar of goodness will grow in our heart. And naturally, that'll be our focus. And, and so, uh, by having this simple aspiration, I mean, just think of how many moments of consciousness we have in a day. And so even though we, we say in the forest tradition we focus on peace and we focus on mindfulness, at the end of the day, it's how many moments of consciousness are we developing in line with Dhamma and, and are we gathering towards. You know, and so this is, this is the qualifier. And it's only when we get enough moments of consciousness in a row that then the ability for path and fruit will actually arise. But in the meantime, it's whatever we can do to be more generous, to be more kind, to be, be more forgiving, to have mentor in our hearts, to grow in the precepts till they're invincible, and to grow in mindfulness, to develop this heart of renunciation. And that's the Dhamma talk. Okay. Any final questions before we bit of a Okay.
Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, may the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing. May all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth, may I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dissolved. <coughs> <coughs> Ah. Uh...